once in a great while, we are privileged to experience a podcast event so extraordinary it becomes part of our shared heritage. In 2014, Sarah Koenig produced Serial. In 2016, Sarah Koenig produced Serial Season 2, which I'll admit I gave up on halfway through. Then for a long time, nothing happened. Until tonight. Behold, the future of wrestling-based podcasts, Sting and Lex Luger versus the Steiner Brothers. Greetings, Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's new series of Match of the Week, where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host, Simon Cross, pick a match from the wide, wide history of pro wrestling that we could find that we thought might be fun to discuss for a little bit, to break down, to dissect, to analyse, to objectively critique, hopefully, as close as objectivity can be achieved. Simon, this was your pick for this one. Uh, it's our first time with one of the big historical promotions of North America. What have we gone for today? We've gone to Super Brawl 1 to watch the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, defend their tag titles against Sting and Lex Luger. Yeah, so this is a rare instance, I guess, at the time of a babyface against babyface tag team match. Uh, for WCW, you didn't mention that. Quite early in the existence of WCW itself. So early still that actually when there's a shot of the belts that the Steiner brothers are defending, you see that they've still got the NWA logo. So this is still quite early into that run. I often cite this match as what I want tag team wrestling to be presented as insofar as the notion that it's a discipline unto itself, whereby just because you're maybe two bigger singles wrestlers doesn't mean you're automatically a better team than the more established tag team, you know? Yeah. I like the idea of it being a separate discipline that has a different requirement, and therefore, while superstar tag teams, because we did a whole episode actually about superstar tag teams in the past, they automatically have a, a, you know, a positive going in because they are two of the best you know like if roger federer and rafa nadal would become a doubles team they probably are going to be pretty bloody good and might win automatically but there's also things about understanding of where to place yourselves in the game and, and strategy and just understanding who's the best one to go for certain shots you know yeah so if you put them against a team that plays bro- doubles tennis more frequently yeah, so if you put them against the Bryan brothers, obviously um, the most dominant uh, force in men's double tennis, they'd probably lose the Bryan brothers. I don't brothers. think they'd lose, but it would be a tough game. It'd be a lot closer than an individual Bryan against either Federer or Nadal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I always think that tag team wrestling should be presented as. You know, that this is a separate discipline. And that the Steiners are better at that than Sting and Lex Luger. But can Sting and Lex Luger's overwhelming power in more ways than once allow them to beat a team that teams all the time even though although sting and luger are already established at this point as a a weird friends best of friends best of enemies 
dynamic is already happening. You know, they've, they've, they've teamed and turned and teamed and turned already. And soon after this, Luger will turn again and become a heel world champion before Sting beats him for the belt at the next year's Super Brawl. Also, one of the things that's good about this, uh, different about this, is that because it's a babyface team against a babyface team, you don't get the traditional tag team dynamic of the hot tag, yeah. the, the beating them down, the doing the double teaming behind the ref's back. This is almost in many because it's a short match; it's only eleven minutes or so. But they pack a lot into it. In a way, it feels almost like a precursor to like a Brock Lesnar sort of match, where everyone's just unloading the big guns almost immediately it's big beefy men beating each other up is what it is yeah and it's glorious within a couple of minutes lex luger's turning rick steiner inside out with a lariat and and rick steiner's returning fire by hitting him with an unsuspecting top rope bulldog you know and all that stuff Sting comes like, in is like throwing people all over the place and diving over the top rope. Yeah, I like that as well because there's like with Scott and Sting, you've got the more agile members of the power teams as well. So there's like they, they can change angles, they can change dynamics, but it, the key current, the key central thread is we're both hard bastards. We're just going to like hammer each other. But they can all do their own things. Like, even though Scott Steiner's theoretically the more agile one, Rick Steiner can still come off the top rope, you know? Yeah. Um, Just because Rick Steiner's supposed to be the powerhouse, how is Scott Steiner not the powerhouse, really, with with that build? Yeah. It's crazy when you think how big he is there, and he ends up getting even bigger. Chemicals are a hell of a thing, aren't they? With his very tight, hot pink tights that don't leave anything to the imagination as far as the outline of... um, Scott Steiner's gluteus maximus. <laughs> Before we watched this match, you mentioned you did mention to me that there would be a, a crowd shot of a young teenage girl holding a set of wrestling. A young figures. teenage girl who looks like she might be forty-five. Yeah, she's got a bit of the Sinead O'Connor going on with the buzz cut. No, it was more like a frizzy thing. I think it was. Um, it's it's funny when you look at and she's got those huge Coke bottle glasses, and she's. Che- what was with everyone in the 90s chewing gum? That's what I wonder now, looking back on it. There was a thing that, if you if it was the 90s, you were chewing gum in some, in some way, yeah. shape or form. Often bubble gum. You know, I, I won't deny I had my fair few hubba bubbas in my time. But... I do, because obviously, um, like, late 90s was like when I was getting, like child like infant school years i do remember bubblegum being a really big thing like like the adverts for it and stuff like that in the nine like late 90s and it just went away yeah it was just thing like Shawn michaels will be chewing gum like during most of his matches back in the 90s when he was like well you get the great visual of obviously when you get super kicked or hit and you can spit the gum out yeah 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 mr perfect as well being like that but now you just don't see people walking around like with their mouths just openly chewing something i wonder why that is i wonder why that happened <laughs> but anyway let's go back to the match itself uh so yeah it's just big moves after big moves throughout really there's a very short feeling out process between rick and lex but it, it, it like i say pretty quickly on it it's flying shoulder tackles and both men trying to show their power against the other one Rick is relatively short as far as wrestlers go in that era. I think he was 5'11". 
But you uh, squat, squat, yeah, you squat powerful, and like those Steiner line clotheslines look brutal. Like everyone there's... in this match can throw a clothesline. Oh yeah, and there's a great moment, great bit of crowd teasing. Scott's on the top rope, and it's like everyone's thinking, "Oh, Frankenstein," but he goes for a big belly to belly instead. No, no, the, the, they didn't really do the top rope Frankenstein's back then. That was also that was one of the other things that was so crazy about Scott Steiner at the time. He was doing the Frankenstein's. He'd whip his opponent into the ropes and do it standing. He never did the top rope version until later on in life when he couldn't really do that vertical leap anymore. So he had to be ah. stood on the top rope and basically already be at shoulder height. Yeah, but I swear one of the commentators... And, oh, they know he's going to do something team. big. You yeah. know? They're going to do something big. But yeah, it's funny. So because they're baby faces, it's just that all them trying to do moves that will get the crowd going crazy. And it is just heavy artillery from the start. And there's some stuff that like they don't even they don't even linger on. Like you, sometimes you forget just how huge Sting was because yeah. he wrestled like a high flyer. But the dude was legit like six foot three, and legit a bodybuilder. And at that, I mean, he was made for the Ultimate Warrior growing yeah. up as a wrestler, yeah. wasn't he? They they went for the territories together. There's a moment in it when he does a running leap over the top rope to the outside with a flying cross body. Like, that's insane what he did. And it was kind of not lost in the shuffle, but it's like just one of many big moves throughout the whole match. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's the, so no one plays up to the crowd. No one really is like working subtle heel. But what is interesting is that like the tension between the two teams escalates greater over time. And there's like a misunderstanding. At one point, the Steiners employ good tag team strategy to do a blind tag. And that's the moment when Rick, Lex Luger hits uh, Scott with something. Um, Rick's already on the top rope and hits him with the bulldog. And yeah. Sting like attacks after that, thinking that that was like an attack from behind. It was turnabout's fair play. And then he just starts to get more heated between the two, the two teams. Uh, that's, like, that, that's when it sort of hits the finishing stretch. I was just thinking of your point about obviously how agile Sting was and his weight. Like if you had Sting at that age now... I don't know if they would have played it up more, so it would have been kind of his whole characteristic, like um, like Donovan Dijakovic and, and Keith yeah. Lee are now, really. He would look so much even bigger now compared to everyone because, in general, the wrestling scene has shrunk a few inches on average. So Sting would actually stick out more height-wise than he did then. Yeah, I could see where you're coming from there. I don't, yeah, I don't want him to be held him to be slowed down, so... You haven't seen Bleach Blonde Sting, so you haven't seen much of this version of Sting. This Not this era of Sting, no. Fiery baby face, lots of wild action. I mean, I guess you don't get to see him do the classic sort of Ric Flair baby face comeback stuff and everything like that. This is a different kind of Sting where half the crowd's not necessarily for him. Yeah. Uh, but he's also not doing much to play that up either. You did get to witness Bad Luck Sting getting caught in the crossfire. So you at least got some of the Sting experience. <laughs> yeah, because Nikita Koloff just was a dick. Well, the, <laughs> basically, the going into this was Nikita Koloff against Lex Luger. Lex Luger yeah. had held the United States title for a record period of time. And Nikita Koloff was making his big comeback after several years in the wilderness. He'd left as a babyface, so he was returning as a babyface. And he was giving Lex Luger a new US title belt, which I think was the design that carried all the way through to the WCW invasion. So it was like the second from last... It would have been the, the, the previous belt until the recent reveal of the brand new US belts. So he was supposed to be giving Luger that in a presentation ceremony, but obviously some amount of jealousy 
The idea that Lex was seen as the greatest US champion of all time, whereas Nikita Koloff had been a previous US champion and feuded with Magnum TA famously over that belt. So Nikita Koloff attacked him and turned heel. Yeah. So he's targeting Lex when it comes to this moment when he's coming in with the Russian chain and hits a clothesline with the chain wrapped around him. But Sting throws Luger out of the way, like sacrifices himself for the greater good. And so he gets clobbered with it and Scott's able to pin him. And again, it kind of... It would seem almost heelish, because how would Scott know? But I think Scott's idea is like, well, all hell are broken loose, so I just figured Rick must have hit you with something. Yeah. (laughs) What's funny, though, do you remember when we watched WrestleWar 92? Because Sting feuded with Koloff, then Koloff left, and then he came back again and tried to side with Sting against the Dangerous Alliance. Yes. Saying, I've turned over a new leaf. But Sting never fully trusted him right up to the War Games match. And Koloff's the last guy to come in. He pulls Sting away from someone and it looks like they're arguing. And Steve Austin and Rick Rude can see that and they're looking to attack Sting from behind. And so replicating that moment when Sting threw Lex Luger out of the way to start their feud, Nikita Koloff pushed Sting out of the way and took the hit himself to prove to Sting. So it becomes all full circle and then Sting comes and helps him and they beat the shit out of Rick Rude and Steve Austin. I mean, that's just wonderful... Long term. Obviously, that's not what their intent was when they did this spot. It was th- this is a clever way to to move Koloff on to to Sting instead of Lex Luger for the feud. But it's a great way of wrapping it up, you know, to do mm. it, to make it go full circle afterwards. You know, gotta love those little callbacks. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the big moves, like I said, almost like a, a proto Brock Lesnar match, and it doesn't it feel has like happened, much of a um... but but it kind of works within the story that this is kind of like. Four of the most super-powered wrestlers. None of them are going to cheat, so you remove that element of crowd psychology or anything out of the way. It is just like, let's hit each other with our biggest moves. We've only got 11 minutes to do it, so we might as well. It's got like a big arcade feel to it, uh, like yeah. a Tekken tag tournament, That's true, yeah. almost. Where it's just like four big jacked characters just wailing on each other and sometimes there's a place for loads of different things in wrestling on, on a specific on like a single show not every match can be like super serious I, super psychology some of it needs to be just crash and bang i think and this, this feels that role expertly i think i think this style of match really helps lex luger as well he's like one of those great mysteries with wrestling that like maybe he could have become like as big a star for either WCW or WWE, as a Hulk Hogan could have, it just maybe was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or, I think he always had limitations inherent to him that meant he was never going to quite make it, like, to that tippy-tippy-top level. He doesn't seem to have the charisma that Hogan did. Yeah, he was, like, three times a better look than Hogan because he was like better looking, had a full head of hair, but the same height and everything. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Hogan's being played going forward by someone as good looking as Chris Hemsworth. That 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 is like mm. weird to me. And he also he did a lot more stuff as heel than Hogan did as well. Like he was turned like when he came into Jim Crockett promotions, he was put in with the four horsemen initially to then yeah. leave them. But then he would like turn back and forth, back and forth. So he was heel with the horsemen, then he turned face, then he turned back heel when he started his US title run. Before this he was turned face in order to feud with Ric Flair after Sting got injured when he was supposed to win the belts. So this Ah. is his second run as a face, and the next pay-per-view after this, he turns heel to win the world title from Barry Windham in a cage match after Ric Flair left for the WWF. So he's almost like the big show as well, in a way, that he could be scuppered by so many turns back and forth. 
Hmm. And it does kill momentum. I like he never came to wrestling through a love of wrestling. Like he was a college football player. He actually originally wanted to be a soccer player. I don't know if you know that. Like he was a I didn't know. Yeah, he wanted to go to England and like play for Manchester United. I mean as a centre back, could you imagine? That dude well, I, you know, I, I don't I, I mean I know that the drug testing wasn't as I know, I know. <laughs> but just an image of him just smashing into people. Lex Luger versus Paul McGrath. Come on, as a Villa fan, you've got to be salivating at the concept. Yeah, he played for the Miami Hurricanes. He entered the United States Football League. He did sign for the Green Bay Packers, but never played for them. Mm. But he was with them for the whole season in reserves. It's so crazy when you look at the NFL now. Do you know, like, the average career of an NFL player is three seasons? It's a hard, it's a very high-impact sport. Yeah. <laughs> if only there was a subsidiary league that some of them could play in. <laughs> you know. Look, we, ne- we may never know if he had a chance to um, mm. be second-time lucky, Vince. No. I mean... Pandemic, uh, okay, let's, pandemic let's, let's cover things. that at a different episode. Yeah. So, oh, what do you think of the Steiner brothers as well? Have you seen much of their stuff before? Not as a team. No, no. Um, barely any Rick. A bit of Scott. Scott always just... By the, time, the, the matches I've seen of Scott were quite late on, I so... this was more of a Steiner brothers match than it was a Sting or Luger match, which, again, really makes sense in the notion of it being, you know, their discipline, their domain. And yeah. they were all about just throwing people around with suplexes, um, big power moves, and uh, but then also shocking you with their agility as well. They were really, really presented very strongly in WCW at this time. When they went singles, like they had Scott Steiner win the television title just before he left for the WWF. So they always, I think they always knew that. I mean, you look at Scott Steiner and you think like. Pfft. Maybe he, maybe he left. He kept stayed in the team too long, you know. Maybe if he'd mm. gone singles in '94 or something with the WWF, I can imagine Vince looking at him and going, "Yeah, I'll, I'd tie a rocket to the back of this lad." Yeah, but like he, he was loyal to Rick for for that period of time, and so, and then by the time he does enter the sing, his singles career, physically he's no longer able to do what he used to be able to do. But almost immediately. He's a plausible world title contender and does yeah. win the world title in WCW in its later years. And, and you know, the big Papa Pump character is such a, a package, an entertaining package. You know? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's captivating. And then he sort of, I think it was really after his tragic run with the WWE that he little, got a little bit exposed with his physical limitations, you know. Obviously, that match with Triple H infamously. And then he sort of became a cult figure. And then now, when you think Scott Steiner, it's a shame, really, when you think of all the great matches he was having with Rick and the entertaining aspects of the big Papa Pump character. But I think the first thing people will think of when they think of Scott Steiner now is is a mathematics lesson. Yeah. Yeah, he but has been. But that was, that, was Scott, that was Scott leaning into the character. Again, yeah. I think he just had, especially vocal limitations like Lex that would never will probably limit him from ever being like a a perennial world champion like for a longer period than he was in WCW. But I think he's a guy that maybe deserves a bit more credit. And and if you watch this match, even though he's probably in it the least, I would think, out of all of them. Yeah. He makes his moments count. And he looks like an equal to everyone. And like if you think like that period of athleticism he might have been able to do something similar to what Sting was doing, you know, you could have very easily put him in the 
Sting role against Lex Luger and it would uh, against Ric Flair and Ric Flair could have probably got some great stuff out of Scott as well. Oh, definitely. The tools are there in in ring. The sadism's there as well. Another match we'll have to do at some point in this. <laughs> also, maybe some of the stuff they did with Arn Anderson and Larry Zbyszko and Bobby Eaton. We also should cover their uh, their feud with Gordy and Williams as well. That was probably the highlight yeah. of the Bill Watts era of WCW. That's, I don't have much more left to say about the match. How about you, Simon? Do you? Uh, Simon's departed for a moment. Well, that was quite a while back. I literally was living in a different place when we recorded that, Simon. Unfortunately, we also failed to record an outro at the time, and that's why we're back in the modern day. We are mad time-travelling bastards this episode. Yeah, so thank you for listening to that episode about a match that, I'll be honest, I've forgotten a large amount of. And I can't remember a single thing we said about it. <laughs> <laughs> the peak of professionalism mm. right here. So what we always planned to do with Match of the Week was to give you four episode chunks. And then after every four episodes, assuming no five stars happen in between the break it up, we'll give you another let me tell you something. And so since this is the eighth Match of the Week, not counting the John Huber special, that means that it's going to be another let me tell you something so soon after the previous one. And then we'll be back to match the week. So in our next episode, Simon, assuming no five-star matches happen, what will be our topic for discussion for the next LMTYS? We are looking at what will WWE look like in a post-Vince McMahon world. Sorry, that sounds like he's definitely going to die to give it up, but we'll, we'll... We'll cover that. <laughs> Are you saying the ghost of Vince McMahon could be operating? Maybe to do some sort of Weekend at Bernie's situation with him? There's a really carny f- theory going on in a minute that Vince died sometime in 2020, and um, that's just why he's not been around. Except for when he introduced The Undertaker into the Hall of Fame and everyone was freaked out by his... Unless that was an operated puppet. How weird it looked. Connor yeah. has had to put on loads of extra makeup <laughs> and everything. Whatever he did to those eyebrows. But anyway, until then, Simon, how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk more about the Stings, Lex Luger, Diner combinations? They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of weeks this was delayed by at least due to uh, Big Dave's five star refund. It's been way more than three weeks. It might be three months by the end of this. But my <laughs> name is Lorca Munnell. That's L O R C A N M U L L A for awaited. N for not anymore. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. Put in at gmail.com at the end of it. That's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And if you fancy throwing a few pennies our way, like Rick Steiner throws a few Steiner lines here and there, then by all means go on our Patreon at patreon.com slash lmtyspod. And if you want to have your very own Dave Meltzer experience... Pop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Well, there you go. Well, there's nothing left to be said at this point until we start talking about dead Vince McMahon. (laughs) Oh, God. Other than my name's Lorca Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time.